I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Welcome once again to another edition of I-94 here on WLPN Chicago. My name, as always, is Mr. Jamie Trecker. Today, I am joined by Mr. Michael Sack. Morning, Jamie. Mr. Jeremy Kitchen is off. He's ill. We wish him better. Uh, before we get started, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking with Ivan Vladislavich from South Africa. He's got a new book out called The Distance from Archipelago. We are taping this, however, on uh, a weekend that is a new year. So happy new year, Mr. Sack. Shana Toba. Do you have any plans for 5781? <laughs> just you know gonna reflect on the last 57 gonna reflect on the 80. last gonna, yeah the last 57 80 <laughs> here in pandemic world uh also did want to mention that we've got a, a bunch of great shows coming up uh, i94 is actually going to be weekly right now through october as you've probably noticed we've been uh reviewing books at a clip gish jen will be on with us and that will be a special show that'll actually air live on tuesday the 22nd at 11 a.m you can catch that as always right here on 105.5 fm uh, today, as I've already mentioned, we're going to be speaking with Ivan Vladislavich. His new book is The Distance. It's in my hand. You cannot see it because this is radio and not television. It is out now from Archipelago. He joins us from Johannesburg. Ivan, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Good to be here. Wonderful. Uh, I want to start. This is a, a novel about uh, two brothers, one of whom uh, becomes quite obsessed with uh, the fighter known as Cassius Clay, who then, of course, famously changes his name to Muhammad Ali and becomes one of the greatest figures, not only in the sport of boxing, but in sports and arguably uh, here in America anyway, uh, one of the most popular figures for social justice that we've ever seen. Uh, I wanted to start here and talk a little bit about the sport of boxing itself. I think it's very interesting you chose uh, to base your book around this, not only because there are so many other wonderful pieces of literature uh, about the sport of boxing, but because this is set in apartheid-era South Africa, and that is kind of a... Um, undercurrent through the book you know you don't really necessarily make it explicit but i mean a careful reader is obviously going to know what's going on in 1980 can you talk a little bit about your decision to use muhammad ali uh really as a character in this book and and what you were trying to get across uh well to start with i think the i was a i was attracted to the story because uh like one of the characters in the, the novel i had a a boyhood obsession with Ali, and I had a collection of uh, of scrapbooks of news cuttings. Um, so that that element of the book is quite closely based on my own experience. And for many years, I was I was I was fa fascinated by that material and always kind of wanting to do something with it. Um, and then I, I guess Ali as a figure is just such a such a fascinating uh, person. Apart from apart from being such an enormously important uh, sporting figure, um, as you said, he's also enormously important as a cultural figure, um, and, and 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 an immensely important political icon. And I think that it's that combination that attracted me to to the story, with a bit of trepidation, I should say, because it is such a big story and he is so incredibly well known. And so the the um, challenge for me, I think, was to try and deal with that that massive story on a small, uh, more intimate level within the you know within the confines of a of a family story. Well, that that's part of the book itself, which which I liked that that struggle to decide as the writer what the story is itself about. Is it about Ali? Is it about boxing? Is it about brotherhood? Is it about 
memory? Is it about uh, it's about you can read it on a lot of levels, is what I'm saying, which I which I really enjoyed. And um, the character you're talking about, who who resembles you in your boyhood, Joe, um, who has a fascination with Ali, it's said that he's not really a boxing fan per se. He's more just obsessed with Ali, and so you know picks up bits and bobs of of boxing on the way. Were you were you a boxing fan before you you wrote this book? Um, I was I was something of a fan, but I, I must say it was actually more of an more of an attraction to Ali than to boxing itself. I think I was like like many people in that era, um, drawn to the sport because of of the, the 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 appeal of the of the character. So he sort of ex- explodes out of the sporting arena into the cultural arena. And he's, and he's, he's newsworthy in a way that very few sports people were newsworthy at that time. Well, you know, he's on the front pages of the paper and so on. And so, um, so I'd watched a bit of boxing. My father was a very big boxing fan, and so I'd watched a bit of boxing. But really it started as, I would say, an, an, an obsession with Ali rather than with boxing itself. But the other thing that was happening um, for Joe in the book anyway, is that there's there's conflict between him and his elder brother and his father and, and what seems like a lot of white male authority figures in Pretoria, which is just outside of Johannesburg. Um, they refuse to call Ali, Ali. They, they'll, they'll only call him by Clay. Cassius Clay. And that was a common, by the way, that was oh, a common thing both here in America yeah, as well, in, yeah. in the South and in the West. And uh, that seemed like maybe it was part of the appeal for Joe. Was, was Did you have that experience? Uh, absolutely. Um, it roused my father terribly that, that I was such a big fan. And um, so, so and, you know, he was an incredibly provocative figure for con- conservative, racist um, white South Africans, you can imagine how provocative he, he was. Um, the the political positions he took, his and everything about him, his confidence, you know, his smartness, everything about him was a was a provocation. And so that, that was definitely part of the part of the appeal to me as a teenager. And I tried to build that into the book. I think it's kind of a felt to me like a rich a rich vein to explore in fiction. Yeah, can we can we back up a little bit for people that may not be familiar with apartheid era South Africa? Can you talk a little bit about um, what South Africa was like before um, the ANC and, and Nelson Mandela? Because as as you note, Ali would have been a very provocative figure there as he was here. Um, and you know, I'm of the age I remember the Wildcat tours of South Africa by the English cricketing team. I, I grew up in Britain, so. Um, and of course, you know, South Africa and, and England have very close ties. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because sports was was such an important thing in your country, and it was used by the ruling um, apartheid government to also gain legitimacy. So I, I think that somebody like Ali would have been a tremendous challenge uh, to that system, as well as in, in a weird way, somebody they would have liked to have exploited if they could. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this the the period when that the the book is set in, which is mainly the sort of sixties and seventies. Um, that's the real the real kind of dark days of apartheid. It's the it's the, it's the heart of the era. And the Nas- the Nationalist Party, which is the apartheid um, party, comes to power in nineteen forty eight, 
and more or less smashes the opposition in in the late 50s and early 60s through a, a whole series of of um, laws and also through direct action against people. So that's the era of the Ravonia trial, for instance, in which Mandela and all, and all the other leaders of the ANC are jailed. So the, the 60s is a very is, is a period in which the opposition to apartheid is very suppressed, um, and that extends into the into the early 70s, and the political system only really begins to to get shaken in 76 or so with the Soweto student uprising. So, and so that period that, that, that I write about it coincides pretty much exactly with my time at school. So I'm at, at, at school in a kind of Christian national um, government school in that very oppressive period, which is, which is, I think, also goes some way towards explaining the appeal of a figure like, like Ali. Could you tell our listeners briefly about the Soweto uprising for those who might not be familiar? So that that was uh, began as a as a protest by um, school uh, students in Soweto against the um, attempt by the government to impose Afrikaans as a medium as a medium of instruction in the schools. So it it, it started as a as a series of protests and marches. Which were very violently put down by the government, and and many hundreds of people were killed. Um, but it, it also signaled the beginning of of uh, a different kind of revolt in South Africa, which never really goes away again after that. So after after that after that those kind of cataclysmic events, you have um, thousands of young young black people, especially leaving the country for military training and so on. And then the, the, the resistance to apartheid spills on, you know, through the late 70s and 80s until, until the, the settlement in the, in the late 1980s. And, Africa, and I, was going, I was going to say, so yeah. Jamie, I was going to say in answer to what you said earlier, that it was, the government was quite keen for, for Ali to come to South Africa. And there were, there were many uh, invitations to him and attempts to get him here. Um, because it would have been a real coup for them to, to have him appear here, as it was to get to get entertainers and sports people to come here, as you say, it was quite important to them for their legitimacy to have people come here as if this was a normal society. Yeah, it seems but like they might have, if it wasn't for certain advocate groups. You know, like I, there's mention in the book about Joe Fraser being invited to South Africa, and he seemed compelled to go until he was urged to, to keep the boycott. Um, yeah, and we should mention there was an international sporting boycott of South Africa. And when I re- referenced earlier the so-called Wildcat Tours, uh, cricket tours were, were organized in England and, and sent you know test match cricketers over to South Africa. Uh, and, and those were um, widely denounced on the international scale because there, at, at the period you're writing about, there was also a tremendous amount of international pressure uh, against South Africa and its apartheid government, which is widely seen as uh, immoral um, and, and, you know, illegitimate, I would say as well. Um, but back to something you, you said earlier, uh, could you tell our leader, our, our listeners, excuse me, um, about Afrikaans, because that is something that Americans probably are not super familiar with. Most of us think of South Africa as a place that speaks English, and, you know, I, I don't know if they're familiar with that. That's a... Um Afrikaans is a language spoken by Afrikaners. So it's people of mainly sort of Dutch and German descent uh, in, in South Africa. 
it's a language with a very kind of complex and also contested history. Um, it was regarded in the apartheid years as a kind of offshoot or the latest development of the Germanic languages. But um, since, since, since then, it's been uh, subjected to closer scrutiny by many linguists and, and historians. And in fact, it's a language that, that develops um, in a more kind of creolized way. Um, with with largely in the mouths of slaves and and with a huge input from black speakers, so the language itself has sort of been re, been uh, re, rehabilitated, recovered. I don't know what's what the correct word is for it um, from being regarded as a language of the oppressor, which was very much the case in the 1960s and 70s, um, to being regarded as a language that actually belongs to many South Africans, and he's in fact spoken more widely by black South Africans than white South Africans. You know, there's there's Afrikaans uh, uh, cursing in the book. Can right. we say that on the air? Probably not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. But but I think that's a really interesting thing, and, and getting back to the actual book, you know, I, I do want to set it up for our, our listeners who may not be familiar with, you know, South African history. It's it's really interesting because the, the kind of... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? The the reformation of Afrikaans and and the, the discovery that it really originated in places that the people that were speaking it in your book don't anticipate um, kind of goes along with some of the themes that you're talking about in this book, how there are memory is a, is a slippery thing. It's very difficult to have a sort of objective truth. And you know, the very interesting background, I mean, to me, one of the fascinating things about your book was, you know, I, I grew up again in Britain during the time of this book. So many things to me felt very much like my own childhood. Uh, you know, I remember very distinctly uh, the pressure of, of sport on South Africa. My father happened to be a sports writer and was working for the BBC at the time. So I, I, every day, you know, we were hearing stories about what was going on in your country. And it is, it's fascinating to me because I also had a fascination with Muhammad Ali as a child. You know, he was somebody that was so much larger than life. And to many, I think, kids in, in, in Scotland or in small towns in, in, in Britain, you know, the only ways you thought about Americans were uh, everybody was from Texas because of the TV show Dallas. You know, everybody <laughs> talked like Lyndon Johnson. Or, or it was Muhammad Ali, you know, this, this larger than life, you know, swaggering figure who was so confident and so boastful. And that was kind of the epitome of it. And the, the, the fact that Ali was such a challenger of, you know, both racial norms in America at the time and racial norms in South Africa and, and in fact, all over the world is, you know, you know, when you're seven, you don't think about this stuff. Let me be honest with you. But, you know, at the, at the time, mm. he was such a huge transformative figure that um, he really resonated with people so far beyond, you know, the boundaries of this nation that it's, it's fascinating to look at him as kind of a protean figure. And I think you've done a really interesting job in the book of kind of making him a character that encapsulates so many of your character's hopes and dreams, yeah. as well as, you know, pointing out the challenges that somebody like Ali would have faced in a society in South Africa at that time period. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've, 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 it's really, really interesting. I've discovered um, since the book was published um, here last year um, how how many people of of my generation, more or less, had had this a similar obsession, a similar fascination um, from 
different all kinds of different places so it's that's a really interesting comment yeah yeah and i mean i think that you know what's interesting about that time as well i i became a sports shredder as well uh and i actually met muhammad ali at one point um and he it was when he was suffering unfortunately from parkinson's i met him in an elevator of all places uh and he still had that magnetism that that pride uh i remember he you know whenever he people who met Muhammad Ali before he passed know he always put up his fists as if he was going to fight you and kind of had that that soft smile you know what I mean and that was a that was a pose that was kind of what he could do at the end to remind you that he was in his own words the greatest you know yep my uh my grandpa always told a story he he's passed on now but he he worked in Detroit in the clothing store and this must have been the 60s and uh Ali was in town for a fight, I think, and he, they, he was getting, he was on his lunch, my grandfather was, and Ali came and sat next to him, and they, they had a, a just run-of-the-mill conversation, totally normal, and then the cameras mm-hmm. came in to, to try to get a, a, a interview with Ali, and he said he, he just changed on a dime um, for, the, for the cameras, and there's, there's a point in, in the book, actually, where Ali talks about getting tired, um, tired of the press and and always having to be on and and followed around all the time um so you, you just pointing back to what jamie says the book does a really good job of of doing this kind of 360 uh, around muhammad ali and more so not life as he lived it but how, how his life was seen from many different vantage points uh, around the world, mainly through these two young boys, but also through the press. That's kind of how the book is set up. Right. A bunch of press clippings precede each uh, chapter of the book. Right, right. Speaking of which, we should actually take a pause real quickly. Uh, this interview is flying by. Let's hear uh, a segment from Ivan's book. Again, we're talking to Ivan Vladislavic, the author of The Distance. It's out now from Archipelago. As always, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt. Today, she was reading in front of Micaiah McRaven, who recorded this uh, live, uh, I believe, at Co-Prosperity Sphere. Uh, so we'll be back in just a minute or two uh, after this short interlude. I did not fall out of love with Ali when he lost to Frazier. To my credit, I became a bigger fan than ever. All through 1971 and 1972, I stuck with him as he fought his way back into contention for the major titles. In this period, he held the NABF title, but not the WBA or the WBC. Ali's first comeback fight was against his former sparring partner, Jimmy Ellis, at the Astrodome in Houston on 26 July 1971. Before the fight, Ali entertained an audience of fight fans, mothers, and children by miming his way through the final round of the fight of the century, exaggerating the details to the point of parody, bobbing, weaving, shuffling, and shooting out his famed left jab. This variety hall act included the left hook from Frazier that knocked him down. Ali opened up with two fast lefts and a right to the head. Frazier dropped Clay with a left hook to the jaw, but he was up at four and was given the mandatory eight count. A reporter asked him how he would feel if by some miracle Ellis were to win. I wouldn't feel bad, he replied quietly, because it would be a miracle. A miracle was not forthcoming. Ali won the fight on a TKO in the final round. Four months later, he fought Buster Mathis at the same venue. The fight went the full 12 rounds and Ali ran a unanimous points decision, but it was obvious to reporters that he held back from knocking Mathis out. Questioned about this, Ali said, I'm a religious man. I don't believe in killing a man just to satisfy a few people. He also pointed out that Mathis was a family man and a nice son and that his wife was at the ringside. Should I kill a man, a black brother, in front of them? But it wasn't just about Mathis, as this comment made clear. 
I just can't get mad at anyone anymore. The more I fight, the more I realize how silly it is, two men beating each other up. The Mathis Reports mentions Ali's forthcoming fight with Jürgen Blin in Zurich, but the archive doesn't contain a single cutting about the event itself. Of the 22 fights Ali had between October 1970 and October 1975, this is the only one that left no trace. In the course of 1972, Ali fought six times, and half of these fights took place in foreign cities. Professional boxing was becoming a global business. The first of these fights was against Mac Foster in Tokyo on 1 April. It took place in the Martial Arts Hall, and it was the first professional heavyweight boxing match ever held in Japan. Apparently, Ali was still finding boxing silly. In the seventh round, according to one report, he appeared to be deliberately allowing Foster to hit him. Ali had predicted that he would knock Foster out in round five, but the fight went the distance and he won on points. On May Day 1972, he fought George Chivalo in Vancouver. Again, he predicted a knockout, but went on to win on points over 12 rounds. The fight could easily have ended earlier. Sometimes Ali appeared to be toying with his opponent. Afterwards, Ali's hands were badly bruised. He explained it to a reporter. Travalo's head is the hardest thing I have ever punched. Next up was Jerry Quarry. Quarry had been Ali's first opponent after his license was restored, and the rematch at the Las Vegas Convention Center was charged with exceptional animosity. At the medical checkup at the Tropicana Casino, Ali shouted at Quarry, I'm told you don't like colored people. And he told reporters, This isn't going to be just a race war, it's going to be a riot. He called me an N-word. Quarry denied the accusation in any event. What rioting there was occurred in the venue after the fight, which Ali won in a TKO in round seven. Two brawls broke out in the crowd, one of them involving the entire Quarry family, including his mother, Awanda, his sister, Diane, and his son-in-law, Robert Kuba, who was arrested. Afterwards, Ali shouted, Bring on Joe Frazier, I'm ready for him now. But it would be more than 18 months before he got his wish. And once again, that was a reading from Ivan Vladislavich's The Distance. It's out now from Archipelago. And we were talking before we heard that segment about how, uh, Ivan, your book uses press clippings, uses Ali's own words, uses historical uh, notes to kind of drive the narrative on. I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that technique because I thought it was very interesting. Um, Perhaps because, again, I, I remember so much of that stuff as a, as a, as a kid, you know what I mean? And, and it was interesting for me hearing uh, Ali's words, in a sense, translated back through, uh, you know, a young boy. Um, it reminded me very much of, uh, you know, hobbies that I think a lot of kids who grew up in the former, you know, empire or commonwealth had. You know, we, we, I, I knew a lot of kids that collected press clippings. I collected uh, comic books. You know, we got those cheap 10 pence comic books and we used to tear those out and make little annuals of the Beano and the Dandy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's, I think it's a very different childhood at that point than many Americans are, are even used to. I, I think people need to understand there really wasn't a lot of television. It was, it was a rarer thing. There was a lot more radio and newspapers and magazines. I think what you really, um, again, those are another character in the book. They were everywhere. And, and people read so many more pieces of the daily press than they do today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, a, it's an, an interesting and somewhat strange fact that South Africa only um, acquired television in 1976, um, coincidentally just before the Soweto uprising. So before that, um, when we relied on... Uh, on radio and then the print media, mainly on, on newspapers, for for our, our sense of the rest of the world. So I grew, I grew up with a lot of radio. We listened to the radio 
kind of every day. Um, the radio was on, you know, in the lounge when when my family were were hanging out after supper. The radio was on in the way that these days people have the TV on. Um, so we had we, we got quite a lot of news that way, and and some of the some of the big sporting events, including some of the boxing matches, were broadcast on the radio, but but not all of them. So essentially, you know, the 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 big sports events like a like a big world championship boxing match arrived in our newspapers um, usually the next day, or sometimes several days, or even a week after the event. Uh, so there's a kind of lag there, which I think many people who grew up in in places outside of the centres of of uh, uh, of the Western world, anyway, have, have experienced that. The world comes to you at a slightly slower pace, yeah. um, and I think I think that's you know, and Ali and and sport are part of the speeding up of it all because the the shift from those slightly more sedate. Um, media like like uh, newspapers to to television is happening in exactly that era and some of it is driven by yeah, some, um, a lot of it's driven by ali yeah so with howard yeah. especially in america howard cosell and oh, ABC yeah. with with ali that became immediate must-see tv well it, it's right. interesting that you i like it when you pose it like that jamie as, as things as characters or themes as characters and thinking about newspapers or information as character or specifically newspapers in this instance i think about the nemesis of that character which right. in this mm -hmm. instance is you know, television or beyond that the internet and and the book addresses that uh, yes. a little bit uh later on um two questions i have and i wanted to know how this book changed for you while you were writing it, your idea of it and the actual content of it, because I, you could feel that wrestling with it, or I thought I could feel it while I was reading it. And the other thing is, um, it felt like there was a search going on for what what the heck can writing do now? What, what can it do now that the other stuff can't? Um, and I wanted to know if you found any answers. Yeah. I, I felt the same way, just to, to chime in. I, I felt like you were making a case in a sense for what print could do that that other media couldn't, I also felt you know nostalgia for for radio as well in there. I, I felt oh a real yeah, his mom likes listening. Yeah, I, I felt that as well. So I, I wonder maybe we're completely off base, Ivan. You tell us. No, I think that I think that's very much a part of the part of the book. I think it's quite close to the center of the book. Is the question of how does how does the world come to you, in stilled images and in photographs. Um, when, after all, this what we're talking about in a boxing match is the epitome of uh, of action. It's all action um, and movement, um, and yet it, it comes to a place like like South Africa, to a, to a child in Pretoria. It comes as a series of of still photographs, which feel almost staged and kind of almost unnaturally quiet. And I guess there's an exploration in the book of of, of what that means, as opposed to the relentless, the relentless flow of information that we've become used to, and I think one—I mean, there's so many implications. I think it's such a big question, but what, one of the differences is that you you don't get to see things twice. You don't get to see them repeatedly. They come to you really once. So if you listen to the radio broadcast um, of a sporting event. Um, you're part of a, a, a sort of a, an immediately present audience, even if you're not physically there. But there are no podcasts afterwards. There's 
just, you know, there are no replays on your TV. So I think that makes such a difference to, to the way in which people observe and then, and then what they're able to make of events afterwards. You left, you're left with, with a record of some kind, especially in a newspaper, but you certainly don't have the capacity to go back and re-examine and re-interpret and re, uh, in a way, which, which we now take for granted that we are able to, to see everything, not just twice, but repeatedly if we want to. And I think while we talk about how the book changed as I, um, as I was writing it, I had to discover in the process of writing that it was a strength rather than a limitation that the material that I had to draw on was quite limited because my inclination all the time was to go to the internet and let's see more. <laughs> what What is actually happening here? Yeah. What does, you know, um, what did he actually say? What is he actually doing? And I realized quite quickly that that was, a, that was a, a sort of slippery slope from which there would be no return. And in a way, one of the, one of the advantages of working with a finite archive of clippings is that that created the, the parameters of the thing. It made it, it, made it manageable. So once, you, once I did, in fact, right at the end of the process, start looking um, for more material online, I mean, it's just completely overwhelming how much there is. I thought a lot about maximalist fiction while I read this book and how you did a good job of covering a lot of bases of present life lived without having to write a thousand pages, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, whereas someone like, I think if you put the same material in the hands of a writer like Pinchon, like this would have, exp it, it would be like an eight volume work. William Volman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, right there, we do need to take a quick break and remind folks of uh, the folks that make the station possible. And we got to pause for station identification as well. You are listening to I-94. This is WLPN. We are speaking with the author Ivan Vladislavic. He is the author of The Distance. It's out now from Archipelago here in the United States. When we come back, we're going to hear another reading from Ivan's book, and we're going to continue this conversation. We'll be right back. <laughs> And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. I'm rifling through Joe's school bag when I come across the shoes. He's gone to Funko Coffee to buy potatoes or bread for Mom, and the canvas bag is lying on his bed with books spilling out of it. It has a peace sign and some other stuff written on it in faded cokey. Jimi Hendrix, Monty Python, what, me worry? He would have covered the whole thing with crap like this, but the boss, that's the headmaster, made a rule that says you can't write anything on your back. He wanted us all to get new ones, but the folks said no. So it went in a tin bath with a cup full of jick. Anyway, the bag is lying there asking to be examined. He's my little brother and I need to see what he's carrying around. You never know. Last month it was a copy of Sex Manners for Men that Frank Berger found in his dad's wardrobe and was renting out to his classmates on overnight loan for 20 cents a shot. All those sticky little fingers. I had to pick the thing up with a tissue. And once I found a photograph of Julianne Stewart when she was in the drum majorettes, which is how I know he's got the hots for her, even though she's going steady with a boy at the tech who has a car. And there's always the usual stuff, balls of wax paper smeared with cheese spread, Fanta orange yo-yo, two-day-old Chelsea bun. But I don't expect this. Shoes. Shoes with a history. They're the school shoes that the dog chewed up. Buster was a stray that pitched up one day and moved in with us. We were a one-dog family and we had already had Cassie, but Sylvie made a song and dance about it, so we stayed. Cassie didn't seem to mind. I've never seen such a stupid mutt, Dad said, and I knew a few of them on the farm, believe me. 
Buster's main problem was that he had retriever blood in his mongrel veins. That's what we decided anyway. He kept bringing things home, things like Mrs. Mitchell's favorite jersey, which she was drying on a table in her own yard. On the way home, he dragged it through a rose bush and then through a hole he dug under the fence. Mom knitted Mrs. Mitchell a replacement, but it wasn't quite the same as the original, which she'd bought at Debenhams in Leicester and brought all the way to Pretoria with her. Another time, he retrieved one of Mr. Burt's clivias. Our neighbor kept his prize plants in the little makeshift greenhouse. Buster fetched the pot in his jaws and shook it out on the front lawn. Then he lay there chewing the roots. That dog is wicked, Mom said. He's got the devil in him. He just needs to be trained, said Sylvie. She loves dogs and she's read a book on animal behavior. I think he's beyond help, Mom said. Something has to be done. Buster loved chewing things, shoes, chair legs, rose bushes, tires. He even found the tennis ball Dad put over the tow bar on the car and chewed it to pieces. When we got home from school one day, he was gone. Joe went all over the neighborhood as far as Yale Avenue, calling under hedges and over gates, but there was no sign of him. He's run away, Dad said, buggered off as suddenly as he came. He'll have attached to himself to some other suckers by now. Good luck to them. But then Sylvie, who was in on the lie all along, let slip that Dad had taken Buster to the SPCA, where he'd been put down, no doubt. Who would want such an ugly dog? Joe was besides himself with rage and grief. I heard him kicking things to pieces behind the servants' quarters and sobbing and cursing words I didn't think he knew, threatening Mom and Dad with terrible violence. It couldn't go on, Mom said. I'm sorry for your brother, but really that dog was making our name mud. Hey, welcome back to I-94. We just heard a reading from Ivan Vladislavich. Did I get it this time? Did you I get did, it? Thank you. you. All right. <laughs> He's the author of The Distance. You know, here on I-94, we it's it's almost a, a self-fulfilling curse. One of us is going to mangle a name at some point. Or yeah, another. we had to be able to put your name in the jar. Yeah, you know, your name, your, Ivan, your name got pulled out and, you know, we screwed it all up. Um, but we have been speaking to him about his new book, The Distance. It's out now from Archipelago. And we just heard a reading, actually, uh, from a section in the book where... Um, one of the boy's dogs is taken away and actually uh, put oh, down. It's uh, actually their sister's dog. The sister's dog is taken to the SBCA and and put down. I, I want to talk about that for a second because for me that was a very emotionally resonant scene that kind of captured oh. a lot of, you know, things going on in the book for me. But I also, you know, Ivan, before the break, and it was really interesting, you were talking about um, how newspapers and radio came to you in Pretoria and about how you know radio is is a kind of an immediate thing you listen to it there's no replays and it made me start to think uh over the break about how today in our very hypersaturated television centric world that it may be one of the reasons that a sort of shared objective truth is so hard to get to and I, I think that you're you're talking about that as well in the book that there's it's very hard to get to kind of an agreement on what things were what things actually happened to the two brothers what they both oh, experienced gosh. what they shared and in a larger sense that is in a sense an indictment of you know the environment of course that, that they're growing up in they were in a government that all, all tried to routinely deny what was going on, tried to deny that, you know, uh, there was a whole uh, segment of their citizenry that was being oppressed. Can you talk a little bit about right. that? Because I, th I think that's really fertile, and I, and I found it to be a, a very fascinating vein in this book. Yeah, I think um, that's, that's sort of the, the, the question in the book to try and understand from the present what happened Um is, is mirrored in the story itself in that era, as as you say, with a 
the fact that the that the characters very often don't know what what's going on that they they live in a certain kind of um, bubble that they that their reality is controlled and contained. Um, one of the reasons why the government didn't want South Africans to have television, um, they, they, you know, they, they specifically tried to keep information from the, the population. So I think that, yeah, that sense of, of how people in a, in a, in a confined, constrained society understand the world, I think that's, that's certainly there. That's part of it. Um, and yeah, getting, you know, just to take it back to the media, what you said is, is interesting because if you compare, one of the things that strikes me in comparing, say, um, a, a newspaper page and uh, what one sees online, um, you may even have the same information, but it's very often contextualized in a different way. So, what, you know, one of the advantages of a, of a newspaper, um, it's, well, it's clearly open to manipulation, but generally doesn't happen. If you get a newspaper out of an archive, um, the information is still pretty much well. It's what it was when it was first printed, and it's in its context. So, if you if the report is about a, a boxing match, the, it's surrounded by a whole lot of reporting about the society and the politics and the culture and the the, the business world and so on that supports that information. And what struck me as very different when one goes to the internet is how you'll find the same photographs, for instance. But it's recontextualized in the contemporary world. It's recontextualized, surrounded by a whole lot of new material. And I think that's one of the things that shakes things out of their historical flow. So you, it becomes more and more difficult for people to put things into, into sequence, into perspective, because, because of that loss of, the, of a kind of contextual stability, if you like, and if you can put it that way. I think that's fascinating because, I mean, when you think about looking at the front page, say, of the Glasgow Herald or the New York Times or, or, or whatever, um, it is fixed. And you tend to look at that in a different way than you browse a website. Generally, when you go to a link on a website, you're going to a specific landing page and a specific story. Um, but on a newspaper, you tend to look at it and, and read it, and then your eye goes to other stories that are around it, and you, you consume that media in a very different way. I think that's yeah. an interesting point. It's also interesting from a historical aspect, especially, I don't know, say for somebody in their late teens now yeah, who, who doesn't really know any of the historical context and what was going on when Ali was right. coming up and when he was a champion. It's much easier to, as as... Uh, let's say as a web administrator, as someone who's creating a page, it's much easier to create the Ali that you want your reader to see. Right. As a, or or may, maybe you could have done that with the newspapers too. I don't know. I don't be, because it, it seemed like a lot of the newspaper writers back then were were biased towards Ali and, and biased against and, Ali and, actually. And, right. And or sorry, against Ali and refused to put his chosen name in print. Hmm. Some of them certainly. I mean, certainly that was that was you know very popular in American newspapers. Um, no, so I, I think that's that's, that's, that, that's really interesting. So that that persistent use of of Cassius Clay right into I mean right ten years after he changed his name that happened in the U.S. media as well. It did, yeah. Mm -hmm. In certain mm -hmm. in certain outlets, not not all of them. And I think it really you know as I remember it again, I was very young. It was really when Ali uh, started appearing regularly on television with an announcer named Howard Cosell. 
uh, who was a short nebbishy uh, Jewish guy on ABC, <laughs> is a good uh, who was famous for doing football. Uh, but he and, and Ali had a very unusual on-screen kind of partnership um, that was a very, they, they fed off each other. And Cosell called many of Ali's greatest matches. And he you know, always was a very, um, th- they were very uh, at loggerheads many times, but there was a mutual respect and Cosell always, always, always referred to him as, as Muhammad Ali. I think one of the things that was difficult over here, and again, it's not excusing it, Cassius Clay went, before he changed his name, had been a a very well-recognized athlete. He got caught up in the politics of the Vietnam War, remember, because he was a conscientious objector. And then when he changed his name, many um, Americans looked at that as part of the political action of refusing to go and fight. Um, and again, that was part of the white supremacy and, and racism that still obviously infects this nation today. We, we obviously have a government here that would like to take us back to 1950 uh, at the moment. But yeah, I hope we could talk about that. It's yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think that that and actually that's what I was kind of get it to. Yeah. You know, I think this book is very interesting, especially to read it in, in 2020 in America, where, um, you know, I. I I know South Africa obviously has its own problems and its its own um, political struggles, which I'm sure many Americans are, are not super familiar with. Um, I know I was not, you know, until, you know, the World Cup really came around and I, I had to cover that uh, for Fox. But here, reading The Distance, you know, now really was in a weird way for me stepping into a kind of mirror world oh, yeah. where... You know, you could replace apartheid with Donald Trump and you could replace, um, you know, the unrest with the unrest that we're seeing in our cities and the, the right wing attacks on, on peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters. And you could see uh, Joe's fixation on Ali uh, akin to a fixation on any number of, of popular uh Black entertainers, whether it be Jay Z, Colin Kaepernick, you know, Chance the Rapper, Chance yeah. the Rapper, you know, there are so many people. Chance the Rapper, of course, is here in Chicago. Many people who now I think um, are kind of in that same position as Ali was. And the difference, I think, the only difference really is that Ali, in a sense, was alone. You know, now there is a a concerted effort among black sportsmen, black entertainers, black musicians, to to now stand up and say, you know, we've we've put up with this for a, a long enough, and enough is enough. Well, that's the other thing that's interesting about the book. There's a lot about the Ali Frazier bouts, which there were three of them. Sure. Ali and Frazier were pitted against each other, both black men, but they were pitted against each other in a in a class war kind of way. Yeah. That's another story. Sorry, back to your question. But Jamie. yeah, I mean, I, I, that, that's kind of how I was looking at it through the, the lens of the Trump era. Yeah, I hope. I mean, I, I do hope that the book speaks to the present. There is there is some attempt a movement in the novel from the seventies into the present um, that deals in some ways with the present in South Africa and also with the with the American present, which is which is for better or worse our present too. I mean, we 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 live with a um, with a, the consequences of your politics all the time, and we're exposed to them all the time. I think in a in a way that's maybe difficult for Americans to understand quite quite how how much information we get around um, your domestic politics, and and we should in a way because it affects it affects us. Um, but it it it, it just um, I think it, it speaks to the kind of entanglement that the that the media have made possible. Um, and and also the kind the the, stra- the the strange versions of celebrity that that we're now living with, um, 
as as exemplified in the in the presidency. Do you get do you get the feelings that Jamie's talking about though the w- way he says when he reads the book he feels it as a mirror to our present reality in the states do you get that feeling in reverse when you see the reports coming out of the media and what you've lived through uh, Yeah very very much so I mean the the sort of um uh uh, very heavy-handed, violent action against protesters, for instance, that we've seen in the, in American cities is something that we're very accustomed to. We don't, we tend not to associate with America, but um, it's, it's certainly um, something that looks very familiar to us. Um, and yeah, there are all, there are all kinds of interesting uh, parallels. I think the attacks on the media, for instance, is something that. Um, that authoritarian governments have, have always done, have always turned the media into the enemy. Um, and that was certainly the case here. So, yeah, there are many aspects of, of a kind of, uh, yeah, not some sort of distant uh, deja vu. <laughs> I mean, you even mentioned, and that makes me think of, you know, the, the, all the reports that were coming about about the uh, rubber bullets being fired at mm. re- directly at journalists. And journalists I mean, being arrested today, in fact, you know, in Los Angeles, you know. Uh, Today, yeah, NPR reporter was apparently tackled on camera filming uh, somebody during a protest wow. and arrested. Yeah, so I mean, all this stuff is just yeah. flying by. It's hard to take in, and and that's uh, again one of the major themes of the book. Um, and to me, that is one of the saving graces of print of reading literature is you get to soak in it in a little bit and let it become a part of you. I mean, all all the the news junkies that I know, it's like nothing sticks. It's like they're constantly being bar- bombarded and like being hit with with rubber bullets that just bounce off and nothing sticks to them. They're just looking for the next controversy. I mean, I I, I forgot about that. You know, that whole scene with Trump outside of the uh, church and you know. Oh yeah. Ma- Clearing protests. Yeah. Well, but I mean, part of that, and I think, you know, Ivan, maybe you could speak to this. That is a popular tactic as well among authoritarian governments is to kind of flood yeah. the media with chaos, you know, and, and make it, yeah. you know, that's a deliberate tactic to make it so difficult for people to know what is true and, and what is false. You know, the Soviet Union did that for years. I, I know the apartheid government in South Africa did it. Um, that that it, What is new, I think, is seeing it come to the United States and kind of getting back to, you know, your book. One of the things that is so interesting is that it also speaks, and, and it's, it's both good and bad, about how much influence the United States of America has on the rest of the world. Our celebrities influence people all over the planet. As you note, our domestic politics make your front pages. Um, and it's, that's it's in that's, the book. The and, two yeah. brothers say they're 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 Americans. Yeah, and that's and that's bizarre in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? It's it's it would be bizarre if you know if Johannesburg local news made the the front cover of the New York Times. Why do why would we expect what Trump says makes it into the front pages of the Pretoria Daily Star? Yeah, yeah, and of course, I mean, uh, it also serves to distract us from our own problems too. I mean, there isn't there isn't there's such an there's a way in which um, the political coverage um, has become so much wrapped up with entertainment, if I could put it that way. Oh, yeah. Um, that one, 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 follow, one follows it in the way that one might follow uh, the daily soap opera. 
and there isn't there is an element of distraction about it. So we we have political problems of our own that are that are pressing and that really deserve attention. And yet sometimes one has the impression that people are more interested in American politics than in our own. Um, so that that's quite that's quite a strange uh, distortion. Um, yeah. We're, we're actually running out of time here. Uh, we've been speaking with Ivan Vladislavich. Did I get it right? Did I get it right? Slavich. Slavich. Vladislavich. I'm so bad. <laughs> I apologize. I'm just, I'm terrible with names. It takes me about 16 times to get them right. Uh, we were talking about the book, The Distance. It's out now from Archipelago. Ivan's actually going to have the last word. We're going to be going and, and having a final reading. But Ivan, I wanted to close our show uh, quickly with news for our listeners. What do you have coming up next? Obviously, this book is just uh, it's just about to be released. In fact, I think we're taping this on the release Today day. Today is the release Today day. Today is the release day uh, for this book. So congratulations. I hope it does very yeah. well. What do you have coming up next for us in America? Um, I'm, I'm working on another novel. And... Um, I'm also working on some kind of memoir type material, so uh, in the early stages, but going quite well. So that's I don't I don't like to talk in too much detail about what it is, but I have a couple of projects going, and I must I must say that they've been moving along quite briskly um, under the lockdown. Wonderful. So so, so th- that's a silver lining, a very small silver lining yeah. to to the current circumstances. Yes. Well, we're, so, social distancing is working for me. I, I think many many writers and artists <laughs> yeah. I've known, if, if they're doing, yeah, we've, we've all we've all been trying to do that. Uh, the novel is The Distance. It's out now from Archipelago. Ivan, thanks so much for spending time with us. Great today. job, we Really, Ivan. really you. appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Great. Uh, we'll be back next week with Gish Jen. You are listening to I-94. Once again, this is Lumpen Radio. We'll see you next time. The call comes from M's phone, but it isn't her on the other end. You don't know me, a man says. My name's Riaz, and I'm your brother's neighbor from number 42, the house with the woo wall. I think, I know that house, but I can't speak. Why is he calling? Listen, he says, you'd better come now. Something's happened to your brother. What's happened, I say. Let me talk to M. Is she there? She's here, but she can't talk now. She asked me to phone you. What is it, I say. You have to tell me. He's been shot. Oh, Jesus, what happened? How is he? It doesn't look good. What do you mean? Just come. Is he dead? He rings off. I look at the clock in the kitchen counter, 6.15. Rita won't be back before 7, and I can't call her either. She's in her yoga class with her phone switched off. I dial Joe's home number and get the answering machine. Em, are you there? If you're there, please pick up. Nothing. Riaz? Nothing. Jordan comes out of his room. His ears are uncannily sharp when there's something he wants to hear. What's up, Dad? I'm not sure. The salad is already on the table, just three tomatoes still to add, standing next to the bowl. I always cut those in the last minute so the lettuce won't go limp. Who gives a crap, Rita says. Stop being so controlling. I'm holding the dressing in my hand, the honey mustard mix I got from Sylvie, which I'm shaking up in a gross lager bottle when the phone rang. My mind can't settle, it keeps skipping from one thing to another, the salad, the tomatoes, my brother, the dressing. I put the bottle down and wipe my hands on a dishcloth. We're supposed to watch the rough cut of Jordan's movie tonight. I've already put him off twice. I need to go out. Mom won't be home soon. I'll try to call her from the car, but you know how she forgets to put her phone back on. If she hasn't heard from you by the time she gets there, tell her I'm at Uncle Joe's and she should phone me. What's going on? I don't know, he had some sort of accident. 
I take the umbrella from the stand at the front door. Can I come with you? No, Jordy, I need you to look after things here. There's chicken in the oven. It should come out in 20 minutes. Then I run for the car. There's the car at the dark end of the block where the street runs dead against the park. Joe's Mazda at an odd angle under the streetlight with one wheel up on the curb. That stupid jalopy he drove because no one in their right minds would want to steal it. The driver's door is open. A knot of people are there on the pavement under umbrellas. A big striped beach umbrella. That was Riaz. It's our specialty, he told me afterwards, pulling it together in a crisis. It brings out the best of us. Everything calm and still, coming and going to the rhythm of the wipers. What did I expect? Flashing blue lights, luminous tape, cameras, lights, action. I switched off the radio. Later, when I got closer, in a booming silence, I'll see that Joe has been lifted from the car and laid on the pavement on his back. Someone has rolled up a jersey and put it under his head. There are crystals of glass in his hair from where the hijackers smashed the window. That was outside his own gate, the one with the ingenious flaps before he drove off down here with a bullet in his chest. Someone else has covered him with a blanket. M wanted to rush him to the Kensington Clinic. It's just around the corner. You can almost see the turrets from here. Or carry him inside out of the rain, but Ria says there might be evidence together. You shouldn't disturb the crime scene. The police are on their way. She should have insisted. How he would have hated this, lying out here in the street. Riaz won't budge. Everything just as we found it. The only thing that will be moved is the blanket. By the time I go down there, it will have been pulled up to his chin. She won't let them cover his face. He's white as a sheet, as they say. And there's dark shadow on the pavement, which is blood, as I'll discover when I put the heel of my hand down in it, leaning over to kiss his forehead. Something I haven't done since we were children, if ever. But now I'm sitting in the car, looking down the long, dirty street. The rain has eased, but the gutters are running like mountain streams, like Tonkani Gorge in the spring. The wipers are still flicking slow time to the dead march in my temples. Oof. 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 The phone will ring any second now, and it will be Rita to find out where I am. is Lumber Radio's Books and Literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Ivan Vladislavic, author of The Distance, out now from Archipelago. This episode originally aired on September 17, 2020. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.